morning scripture reading comes from Romans 10, verses 10 through 15. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, you may be seated. It's me again. Uh, yeah, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Romans 10. That's where we'll be this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into that text. Father, we, all of us, at some point, um, or maybe all of us, uh, someone told us about Jesus for the first time. And at some point, we believed what was, what was said, if we're, if we're Christians, if we hold the faith. And so, God, we just want to think about that this morning, what that, what that looks like, what that means, how we do that well as a church, and... Would you help us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We have uh, two weeks left in this series we've, we've called Church for Monday, which has been kind of the idea as a church. We want to help like, you think about what it means to follow Jesus in the real world, in your Monday life. Whatever you're doing tomorrow, what we do here as a church should, should directly affect all of that. And, and this week we're going to talk about something that has been just a pretty common conversation point for me as a pastor over the course of of the last year, which is how do you, like, how do you talk about Jesus with other people, especially people who don't believe? How do you, you know, for lack of a better word, how do you evangelize? How do you share your faith? What, what does that look like? How do you do that? How do you do that in a, in a way that's, that's not weird, <laughs> that's compelling, right? As we talk about, or as we live out our, our, our lives following Jesus on Monday, how do we talk to our family members, our friends, our neighbors about the gospel, about Jesus in a way that's compelling and not strange? The first time I ever remember sharing my faith was when I told one of my best friends he was probably going to hell on AOL and Messenger. And believe it or not, it went even worse than how that just sounded. Uh, it, was, it was terrible. And, and, and talking to people about Jesus, it's hard. It's overwhelming. It's difficult. And there are lots of reasons we might, we might feel that, that way. And, and so I want to I address those, but I really this, this, this morning's sermon is hopefully going to be an encouraging one, because like, I think you already have all you need to share your faith in a compelling way. You, are, you don't need anything else than what you already have right now. And no matter how you feel, you're ready. And here's how I want to I think about Romans 10 together. Uh, is first, I, I just want to, probably the three reasons I hear most why it's hard to share your faith. I'm going to give like a theological answer to those uh, uh, those, those hesitations, right? So three hesitations, three theological answers to those hesitations, and then three practices to engage, to hopefully begin to share your faith well, right? So three hesitations, three gospel, theological reasons why, uh, and three practices. So it's a nine-point sermon, so settle in, okay? Just It's not. It's, uh, it's not that at all. Um, but the, the, first, the first hesitation I hear is it's going to be weird. At the moment you start talking about Jesus, it's going uh, to be weird. It's going to be forced. And anytime I think about... Uh, like evangelism, I think of this 30-second clip from the comedian Jim Gaffigan. Take a look. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. 
<laughs> he, he better not. It doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Does anything make you feel more uncomfortable than some stranger going, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus? Yeah, I'd like you not to. <laughs> you can say that to the Pope. I want to talk to you about Jesus. You'd be like, easy, freak. I keep working work. I have to admit, that was a good impression of the Pope. <laughs> All right, so that's, that's where I feel like it's always the best place to start. I think I've showed that clip in a sermon like four times already, so you're welcome. Uh, but I, here's, the, here's the point I want to make, is you, you cannot share Jesus without it being weird. I think a lot of times we're like, I'm going to wait for the right moment. It's, there's going to be a natural point. to No, there, it will never not be weird. And here, uh, I think Paul says something to it that sort of underhandedly addresses this uh, in verses 10 and 11. He's talking about belief, how you become a faith, how you become a Christian, how you, you follow Jesus. He says, uh, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And so he makes this, this theological point. If you believe in God, you will not be put to shame. God is committed to you. He will not abandon you to judgment. He will not... He will not forsake you. If, you. if you accept Jesus in faith, God will not abandon you. And there's an irony here, because when Jesus talks about, uh, to his disciples about sharing, uh, like talking about him to other people, often this theme of shame comes in. And Jesus says, if you, if you acknowledge me before others, I'll acknowledge you before the Father. And, 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 and as he lays out what, what he means by that, oftentimes he goes to, listen, they, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Um, if you're ashamed of me before other people, I'm going to be ashamed of you. And I, I think anytime we start thinking, sharing our faith, like the category of, of shame or embarrassment comes into play. And so the, the first reason why you're ready, you're ready to share the gospel no matter how you, you feel is that what Paul's saying is God has already taken your shame. Right? If, if you're a Christian, if you believe the gospel, it means that you should live your life entirely free of the opinions of other people. Not that they don't matter, right? Not that people shouldn't speak into your life and change, you know, the way you think or the way you live or all those things. But when it comes to like the, the category of Jesus, our concern for what other people think about him or who he is, like none of that's relevant. Because he's taken away our, our shame, right? He's taken away our, our sin. And that should make us people who are freed up to speak truth to other people, which I think is like in a culture like this is incredibly important people willing to speak truth in, in love, regardless of the consequences on the other side. And so listen, there, there's just no way you can do that, and it's not, it not be weird. Right? You can't avoid that. And yet God is, is, has taken your shame. And so here's, here's the practice I want you to, uh, to think about. As you think about like, what it means to share your faith, what it means to share Jesus with other people, uh, think of this as a practice, which is embrace the eight seconds of weird. Here's me. I'm reading uh, a book by Brene Brown, uh, who uh, psychologist, uh, author, a book on leadership called Dare to Lead. And one of the she has this point in the book where she says, you know, a key point of any leader is you have to be willing to go to hard conversations, and that like that's a part of it. And she's not talking about sharing your faith at this point, but that's a hard conversation to have. But what she says is like any hard conversation you have, there's like she's like I tested this. It's like I went, I I had hard conversations, I timed it. She's like there's this eight second period where it's really hard and it's really awkward and it's really painful, and then you get past it, right? You get past the eight seconds, and then you have a really meaningful 
conversation. And so she like to encourage leaders to enter into hard conversations. She says you just have to you have to think, embrace the eight seconds, right? And so if you if you're into bull riding, I'm not, but I hear uh, eight seconds is a good time frame for bull riding, right? So you get on, it's the same as bull riding. There's gonna be eight seconds where it's gonna be like you're you know it's gonna feel like you're gonna get thrown into the stand. It's gonna be weird, awkward. Once you push back that past that, you get into meaningful conversation. And that's been true in my experience, especially in a culture where we, we, we pretty rarely stop to, to think about deep things, right? Like we, we pretty rarely stop, like what, what is life truly about? Like we rarely have those types of conversations. If you push past the eight seconds of weird, you can get to a pretty beautiful place with people, even if at the end of the day, they're not, they don't agree or they see the world differently Opening up that line of conversation is actually, it's a meaningful place. And I think this is probably the, this is probably the, the biggest objection for us, right, is, is we just, we don't want it to be weird. And so we wait for the natural moment, which never comes, and so we never, we never share our faith. So that, that's, that's the, our first hesitation, right? It's going to be weird. And listen, it's going to be weird. You can't get around that. But God's taking your shame, so embrace those eight seconds. That, that's point one. Uh, the second reason I, I hear, um, and maybe not spoken explicitly, but I think is, is there, is this feeling like I'm not going to convince anybody anyway. Like no one really changes their, their mind. So every day, like we're surrounded by, by people with all kinds of beliefs, all kinds of, of, of ways of seeing the world, <clears throat> excuse me, all, all kinds of religions. And we're, we're connected by, you know, through our smartphones or the internet to the entire world. Right, so it's not just, you know, especially in the United States, we have a unique kind of cross-cultural mix in our, our culture where we're encountering all kinds of people at all times, but also through the internet, through your smartphones, you, like you, you are encountering the world every second of your life. And so we want, like, I'm not going to convince anybody. Why even try? And, and Paul, he's not speaking directly to this, but he says something that, that bears an implication on this. Here's what Paul says, verses 12 and 13. Uh, Paul uh, writes, he says, For there... There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a pretty stunning statement, because what Paul is saying is, like, your background, your morality, your, like, your pedigree has no bearing on whether or not you can be saved or not. Right? Jew, Greek, doesn't matter. What matters is that you call on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so, listen, the first reason you're, you're ready to share the gospel is because God's, He's taken your shame away from you. The second, this is probably more important, is that God wants the gospel for every person. And this is like, I think we think, oh gosh, we just live in such a different world today. You know, we're surrounded by so many different beliefs and, you know, how can we think Christianity is true and try to convince people that, it, that, it, that it's true? And yet, like the early Christians lived in the same world that we did. In fact, a very, a very, they were going through massive cultural shift like, like we were. And they, they weren't connected to one another by a smartphone or the internet, but, but by the Roman imperial uh, expansion as well as the Roman road system, which suddenly travel became much easier. There was, uh, because of, of even before the Roman Empire, Alexander the Great sort of made Greek the one language throughout the world, so they were now sharing a common language. And suddenly, uh, in Jerusalem and, and the places where the disciples lived, there were all kinds of religious belief, all kinds of different people, all kinds of different perspectives. And yet, from the beginning, Christians believed and practiced 
and were convinced that the gospel was for every culture and that it was worth enormous effort, enormous resources, enormous time to take the gospel from Jerusalem into the rest of the world. And you heard uh, Peter on the video in China, he talked about this. He talked about the enormous resources of missionaries and finances to get the gospel into China. And listen, the same is true for you and me, whether we recognize it or not. How many, how many different people had to, to take enormous risks that you and I were recipients of the gospel? And so, you know, quick aside, there, there's a theological trend today, which is, well, what do we do? Like, what happens to people who've never heard the gospel? Can they be saved? Can they not be saved? And I was like, I'm just so uninterested in that conversation because the, the universal witness of the New Testament is to even spend time addressing that question is wasting time. The gospel needs to go out, right? If you have that theological discussion, great. That's not a discussion Christians were interested in. They were interested in getting the gospel into the entire world and sparing no expense, no cost to get the gospel into the rest of the world. And I would even say, like, this is why Christianity is actually, it's very unique as a religion. Most religious people or religions are, they're built around uh, one culture or one place, right? So they, most religions have a geographic or cultural center. So if you're a Muslim, your geographic cultural center is, it's Mecca, it's the Middle East, right? That's where most, most Muslims live there. That's where the faith is centered. Um, in most Hindus, this, their geographic cultural center, it's India, right? That, that's, if, if you're Hindu, you're, that's probably where you live. But Christianity, that's not true of us. If I was to ask you, where's the geographic cultural center of Christianity? Like, you could not give an answer to that. If you said Rome, it's like, well, actually, no, the church is growing more today in South America and Africa and parts of Asia than, uh, than in Western Europe. Like, it's, Western Europe is not the center of Christianity. Right? If you'd asked that question 2,000 years ago, you'd say, well, Jerusalem, that's where Jesus was founded. But then the church spread into to Europe, and then it spread uh, you know, across the pond to us. It, was, uh, it existed in Africa long, um, long before it existed in North America. You, just, you cannot name the center of Christianity. And that's because from the beginning, Christians were convinced the gospel is for everybody. That God wants the gospel for everybody. And so here, here's where... Uh, Here's the practice that, 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 that kind of leans out. And this is going to feel a little bit like, how are these two things connected? But just stay with me for a minute. So God wants the gospel uh, to get to everybody. So the, a practice for you to embrace, to live into that, is to, to stop convincing and start listening. And, and think about listening in, in two ways. First is, is listening to, to your neighbor. That where are they, where are they hurting are you a safe person for them to share that, that with you? Like, listen well, enter into their life. Because here's what's interesting. that when you, when you read how the Christians entered into culture, entered into the places where they shared the gospel, they clearly understood the cities and the places they, they went. And the, one of the best examples is Acts 17. Paul goes to preach to Athens, uh, to the philosophers there, and he begins by quoting two of their poets and then basically saying, like, these poets... They knew the truth, but the truth is only fulfilled in the gospel. And so Paul had listened to their culture really well and was able to speak out of it. And sometimes I wonder if Christians, if we do a good job, like listening to our neighbors, what are their hopes? What are their fears? What are their, their dreams? Like what, where, where does what they believe not, like not line up with where they're, they're going? Right? Do, you, do we listen well enough to be able to share the gospel in a meaningful, compelling way? Way so want like listen. You have to be willing to listen to your neighbor. But secondly, um, is listen to to God. And I, like I would just continue to meditate on this question: Is do you 
Do you believe God wants the gospel for every person? Like even more than you. And you may have someone in your family, like you're really, and you, like you just so wish they would believe. Like, do you believe God wants them to believe even more than you? And even for, like, just take a step back and, and like, how did you become a Christian? If you are, if you're a Christian, how did you come um, to faith? This is for me, it was, I grew up in a Christian home, Christian parents. That was a big part of my story. But kind of the moment where I, like, I explicitly said, all right, I want to follow Jesus. It was, it was, I was, was second grade Sunday school. Uh, led by Evan and Deb Fallis, and they, they were talking about the important, uh, importance of baptism and how Jesus told us to, to be baptized. And then they told this story, and it is, it, it is a story with terrible theology. It's not compelling. Like, there's no, there's no danger. There's no, there's no diff- like, it's just, it's a, it was a bad story with bad theology. And here, here's what they told me. They said, you know, there was this kid, and he was driving home uh, to church, and, or from church, and uh, he asked his mom, Mom, I've, I've not been baptized, never been baptized. If we died on a car accident on the way home, uh, would I go to heaven? And the mom was like, no, because you haven't been baptized. And Jesus said, you have to be baptized. And so if you're a Christian, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. And so, uh, no. And I remember sitting there like, I'm not baptized. And I'm going to drive home today. And what if we died in a car? I mean, it was like, this is a, a, listen, that's terrible theology, right? We're not saved by baptism. We're saved by faith in Jesus, not baptism. So it's bad theology. It's not a great story, right? It's incredible. Like, it's just not a good, and yet it worked. It worked. Like, that is, it worked, and I got baptized and, and, and felt in that moment, like, I could not, I couldn't siphon off my parents' faith. Like, this had to become my own. And, and he, like, here's my point, is that God, like, God uses Listen, don't hear this as like an embrace of bad theology. I'm not doing that. But like God uses bad, bad theologies, bad gospel presentations all the time because he wants people to know more so than, than any of us will ever want anyone to know. And what it took was two, two people willing to, to offer, like offer the gospel to me. To say like you, Tim, you can't just write off your parents' faith. You have like this has to be yours. And God is, God is strange like that. And you look back at 2,000 years of church history and, um, and you think of the massive expansion of the church in every culture, in every place. Maybe you think of your own story. Like, how did you become a Christian? Like, it's, it's probably ridiculous. Like, it's probably, it probably should never have happened, and yet it did. And then we have the gall to look at someone else and say, they'll never believe. I'll never convince anybody. No. God wants that person to become a Christian more than you do. And he might use me. He might use you. He might use this conversation or that conversation. Or he might not. He might use someone who does it way worse than how you did it. And yet the burden is, is his. And it's why I love what Paul, what Paul says here is really powerful. He, he asks this question. You know, so he says, how are you saved? Well, you're saved by calling on the name of the Lord. Right, by, by recognizing your position of weakness and need of salvation, you call on the name of the Lord to save you in faith. So Paul says, okay, well, how do you call upon the name of the Lord? And well, faith, belief, right? That's what Paul says. How are they going to believe if, if, or how are they going to call if they don't believe? So how do you believe? Well, you believe because someone preaches the message to you. They give the message to you. They give the gospel. And so how are, Paul says, how are people going to preach it unless they've been sent? Essentially drawing it back to God is, he is the sender. 
Any conversation you have, any person you long to see become a Christian, or if you're not in a position of faith today, if you're not a Christian, like all, God has done so much <laughs> to, to get to you, to get you to the gospel. He wants you to become a Christian, to follow Jesus. God wants that more than anybody. Do you believe that? And that's why, like, too often, I think, when we think of evangelism, we think, I've got to convince somebody. I've got to do the work. It's on me. And no, it's not. Listen. Stop convincing. Stop, start, start listening to your neighbor, to their needs, to their questions, to their longings. And start listening to God, who wants them to come to faith more than you ever will. All right, so that's, that's, that's point two. Point three, then. That's the third objection that I, I think is probably there, whether we speak it or not, is that it, it just it seems arrogant to say, my religion is right, your religion is wrong. You need to agree with me and not with what you agree with, right? It's wrong to, to try to convert somebody into your, your faith. And, and this, this bears out. The Barna uh, Research Group recently did a study that came out that said 50% of Christians under the age of 35 think that it's wrong to evangelize. So people my age, half of us think it's wrong to evangelism and because it feels arrogant. Right? It feels like you're saying to someone, the way you see the world is incorrect, and you're wrong, and I'm right, and you need to agree with me. And yet that's not what Paul does. Paul doesn't go to, uh, and what Paul's doing here, he's actually meditating in Romans 10 on why so many people in Israel, the Jewish people, why they're, they don't believe in Jesus. And he's, he's, he's broken by that. He, he, that's hard for him because he's a Jewish person. And he gets to the end, right, and he asks all of these hypothetical questions. How will they call on him who they've not believed? How are they to believe in him who they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? And this is the, this is the, the take-home verse of this passage. As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, the grammar's off a little bit there. It's the feet are not what is beautiful, um, the gospel is what's beautiful. And Paul just says, how beautiful are people who take the gospel and, and offer it. Right? Not how right are the people who share the gospel or how smart are the people, which is often, I think, how we think of evangelism. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the answers to the questions yet. I don't. Listen, all of those things are important, really important. But I think that like, what makes the gospel compelling is not... It's not how right it is, but how beautiful it is. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so here, here's where I'm going to end, and, but don't hear that as a false promise, because this is where most of the sermon is going to land. Uh, I think that if you want to become someone who shares your faith in compelling, non-threatening, encouraging ways, you, you need the practice of meditating on the gospel. That needs to be the most important practice. And, and when I say meditate on the gospel, I mean a couple of things by that. The first is that there, there's a story, one of the best stories in the Bible of someone like accepting salvation from God. It's, it's retold in the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's told better there. Um, you know, so you should go home and read that story. But it's the story of this guy named Naaman. And Naaman was a powerful warrior, uh, you know, a general, powerful guy, conquered a lot of people, impressive figure. But he, he captures leprosy. He gets leprosy. He gets sick, so he's going to die. And he begins to try to like, use all of his resources, his power, his money, to try to find 
healing, and he can't. And then he hears about the God of Israel who, who can heal leprosy. And this prophet named Elisha who, who could heal leprosy. So Naaman says, well, I'm important. Of course, uh, Elisha is going to respond to me. So he goes to see Elisha to ask for healing. And Naaman, this world-class general, this famous person, Elisha, this you know, little prophet, doesn't even come out to talk to Naaman. He sends a servant out, and the servant goes to Naaman and says, Naaman, uh, there's this dirty river over here. Go wash in it, and then you'll be healed. And Naaman, he can't do it. Right? He's, and, and I love the way, uh, I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible tells it. Uh, here's, how she, she, here's how she tells the story. She says, he says, Naaman saying, I'm Naaman. I'm important. I should do something important so God will heal me. And he rode off in a rage. Of course, you and I both know that's not how God does things. All Naaman needed was nothing. It was the one thing Naaman didn't have. I love that line. All Naaman needed to embrace salvation was nothing. It was the one thing he didn't have. Which I think is a, it's a powerful way of explaining what faith is. Faith is saying, God, I cannot save myself. I cannot, I cannot come to you apart from you coming to me and saving me and rescuing me. And I'll go wash in the dirty river if that's what I have to do. Whatever you tell me to do. And, and, and that's a powerful illustration of what Paul says when he says, and he's quoting the Hebrew Scriptures here, when he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Regardless of how important you are, right? Regardless of how impressive you are, all you need is nothing. And that's, when I say meditate on the gospel, that, that's where you have to start, is meditate on what you need is not to be the most smartest, well-prepared, interesting person as you try to share the gospel. You, you need to be a person who is well acquainted with your own inadequacies, weaknesses, and incompleteness and your desperate need of salvation before God. That's what you need. And if you're not a Christian uh, this morning, or maybe like you've never made an explicit decision to follow Jesus, one of the reasons I often hear is, well, I don't, I'm not sure I know enough yet. I still have more questions. I'm not sure I believe enough yet. And yeah, like, you'll never have enough answers to the question. And you'll never probably get the right answers to the questions. All you need is nothing. Right? To call in the name of the Lord is, is all that is, is to say, I am not, I, I'm in need of help, deliverance, salvation, grace. And Jesus, you're the one person who can provide it for me. That's, that's it. And there are lots of questions. There are lots of doubts. There's lots of uncertainties. There's lots of struggles that come out of that. But it's like, do you want to call on the name of Jesus to save you from death, from yourself, your own inadequacies, your own brokenness, from the circumstances pressing against you? Is Jesus your deliverer or not? And if the answer is yes, you're there, right? You don't need to be impressive. You don't need to have all the answers. All you need is nothing, and I would say, so that, I mean, that's the non-Christian. If you're a Christian, how this informs the way we think about sharing our faith is, um, it's, it's thinking about it like this. When I, when I started uh, seminary, um, one of my professors, he was one of my favorite professors, he talked about moving to Chicago and just seeing these massive, these massive buildings and thinking, how in the world could I ever make a difference in this large place, right? Like, actually, the gospel, you know, proceed forth in a huge city, 
like this. And a part of what that, that led him to do is begin to research how do revivals happen? How, do, like, how, do, how, do, how does the church enter into moments of mass conversion? Right? Lots of people coming to faith. Lots of being, be, people being convinced the gospel is true. And what he found, like the, the dominant thread of revival in the church starts with people being convinced of their own sin, their own brokenness before God, leading them to an utterly dependent life in, on Jesus. And I think the best illustration of this is, uh, is Billy Graham. If you watch old sermons of Billy Graham, like, they're, not, they're not earth-shattering sermons. They're simple. And he had this practice, uh, you know, one of his biographers said, Billy, Billy Graham he had this practice where he always had a Bible open wherever he was. Just in case he had a couple minutes, he'd go and read uh, the Bible. Like, so how we treat our smartphones, that's how Billy Graham treated his Bible. And even he was interviewing Billy Graham, and his, you know, he's in his 90s at this point, and he looked over, and there was an open Bible on Billy Graham's desk, 90. He's not preaching anymore. The Scripture's still open. And Billy Graham's defining quality, I think, and he would say this, was not his eloquence, not that he understood culture really well and was able to, to penetrate you know, people's thinking and, and convince them to become Christian. His his secret was his utter reliance on the Word of God and Jesus and the Gospel and not his own strength, not his own abilities. And I wonder if maybe the reason why sharing our faith is so difficult is because we, we don't have nothing yet. We have something, right? We're, we're not at Naaman's position of an utter reliance on God as our means of salvation and hope. We're not there. And so we're unable to share the gospel, or it's hard to share the gospel because we don't have that kind of reliance. So when I say meditate on the gospel, that's what I mean. Like, meditate on the fact that you will not be saved apart from the amazing, incredible, ridiculous grace of God. All you need is nothing. That's, that's one. The other is that my, like, the reason why you need to meditate on the gospel is because there is nothing that's more beautiful than the gospel. And the only way you're ever going to believe that is if you meditate on that, is if you think on that, is if you wrestle with that. You know, many of you know that um, was about two years ago, um, our, our oldest son was diagnosed with, with muscular dystrophy. And it was hard learning about that because we, you know, we didn't know what that meant, honestly. We, we, we didn't understand the diagnosis to great degree. We didn't know anyone with muscular dystrophy. And so what that meant was we had, began to have to walk, like what the implications what were for this. And, and the biggest one being that in, in the not-so-distant future, our, our son will lose the ability to walk and will be confined um, to a, a wheelchair. And so as we, you know, as we were learning these, these medical hard facts, um, I, I spent a lot of time in my basement in the scriptures, and I went to two places primarily. One was the Psalms to give me language in how to pray. The other was, was the Gospels. I, just, I, like, I felt like I needed to, to re-examine Jesus and who is this guy, right? And does he have anything for me in this moment of utter desperation? And I began to notice something in reading through the Gospels fresh that I'd, I'd never, I, I was there, but I'd never noticed before, which was Jesus, one of Jesus' primary acts of miracles um, in his ministry was healing people who could not walk. I, saw, I remember reading through the Gospels and wondering, like, did that man, you know, did that man have muscular dystrophy? Like, does he, did he have what my son has? But it, it was even more than that, because there, there's a moment in Jesus' life when, uh, when John the Baptist, who was like Jesus' kind of right-hand man, he was the one who, who set the table for Jesus' ministry. And he was put in prison. He was arrested. And it's pretty clear he's going to die. And, and so he was wrestling with that. He's like, Jesus, I thought you were the Son of God. I thought you were the Messiah. I thought, 
thought you were a person of power, you know, like, why am I in prison if I'm your right hand man? Like, why am I rotting away here? Why am I going to die if you're the Messiah? And so he, John sends his disciples to Jesus to say, Jesus, are you who you said you were? Right? Are you actually, are you the person that you said you, you were? And, and Jesus said, he first says, bless are all who don't fall away on account of me. Which is like, Jesus essentially acknowledges, listen, I just do things differently. Um, but then he says, you go back and you tell John this. Which is essentially, these things are happening, which is proof that I'm, I'm the, the Messiah, I'm the Son of God. You go back, you tell John this, the blind see and the lame now walk. And I just remember reading that and, um, you know, just like having a hope and a, um, a future that was just it was like utterly different than what I'd had before. I'd read over that scripture so many times. And here's like, unless you go to Jesus like that, right, with utter dependence, Meditating on the many ways the gospel speaks in real ways to all of the sufferings, all of the pains, all the experiences of our lives. Unless you do that work, right? You go to the basement of your heart and you just open the scriptures and you meditate on what they say in the gospel that's there. Unless you do that, like, of course you're not going to share the gospel, right? If, the, if you don't see the gospel as the most beautiful thing ever, then you're not, like, you're not going to share it. And I think that's a lot of times why I don't share or haven't shared the gospel is you know, the gospel is more like this, this thing that's a part of my life, right? Like, like I root for the Cubs, right? Like it would be weird for me to come to you and say, you know, you're a Royals fan, but you shouldn't be a Royals fan. You should be a Cubs fan because Wrigley Field's better than Kauffman Stadium. And even though we lost for 100 years, now we're better, right? Like that would be weird to like actually try to convince you of that. And I think a lot of times evangelism feels like that because Jesus is a tangential part to our life, not the beauty out of which we're living every second of our day. And if Jesus is a tangential, if, if he's just a side part to your life, of course it's going to feel you know, strange, awkward, like you're selling something that's not true. But when you meditate on the gospel and its beauty, and it's the center out of which you live, like it's, it's just easier, it's easier to share, right? Because you're not going to someone saying, I'm right and you're wrong. I have a better way of viewing the world than you do, right? I'm correct. You're incorrect. No, what you say is, look, just look at this. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this hopeful? Like, doesn't this answer your deepest longings, the thing you're, that you wish was true? Isn't that this? The gospel is, it's the most beautiful thing that you could ever, ever hear. And that's why Paul ends this by saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And so how many, how many feet did it take to get the gospel to you? Right? How, or to me, like how many, how many feet had to go and, and embrace the awkward and embrace potential shame or arrest? Or, you know, face suffering to, to share the beauty of the gospel so that one day when I needed it in my basement, I had it. It was there. I had it. And talking to Jesus, uh, to, to others about Jesus, is always going to be weird. It's never not going to be weird. It's never going to be a moment when you can share your faith and it's not going to cost, uh, cost you anything. And you can always learn more. You can always get better answers. You can always think out more what the gospel means, how it applies to the people around you. But the only, the only way who, to be a person who shares the gospel is someone who is convinced it's the most beautiful thing that you could ever encounter, ever see, ever experience, ever know. Someone who sees its beauty, who lives that beauty, and has to speak it to whoever's willing to listen. Let's pray.
God, we, we cannot believe the gospel uh, to the extent that you would want us to without your help. We can't see it without, um, God, without really your spirit being at work in our hearts. And so I pray first for people like me, maybe who believe this message before, we believe it more. The, just the beauty of what it is would be, would be more evident to us. Those who aren't sure of the gospel, God, I pray you would, you would show them the beauty of it. Address their questions, address their concerns, and, and push them forward. Um, and God, as, as a church, make us a people who, who live with this as our center, that Jesus Christ went to a cross, died for our sins, rose three days later to free us from all our brokenness, this evil world, to give us new life and new hope. Make that true for us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.